Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, here with another China History Podcast. I was thinking in this third episode of our little Cultural Revolution overview that at least we'd get through 1966 and into 1967, but that ain't going to happen today. 18 days is all we're advancing in this episode. August 1966, civil rights movement in the U.S., Revolver was released, John Lennon made his famous apology for saying the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, Vietnam War under LBJ was heating up, and yet all those devastating earthquakes that month in Turkey. In August 1966 in China, Mao is going to unleash this monster he created called the Red Guards. This is when it all starts. This is when those massive rallies in Tiananmen Square start to happen. Parts one and two of this series sort of gave you a general idea about how this whole thing got set up and how all the groundwork was laid. Now it's time for Mao Zedong, now pushing 73 years old, to show off and get in front of his millions of adoring fans and show everyone he could still shake it a few times. Now is when one of the all-time great historical displays of megalomania, caught on film at least, is about to go down for all to see and enjoy. In the last couple episodes, we saw how he silenced his critics, stuffed the halls of power with like-minded individuals, and now he's playing with fire, thinking he can kick up this massive dust storm and at the same time keep everything under control. He's going to launch the Chairman Mao show, and although he never lived to regret it, he sure figures out it's easier to create chaos than to rein it in. August 1966 is when the gathering thunderclouds start to turn this scary gray-black color, and ominous blasts of lightning begin to appear that presages this violent storm, not seen in China since who knows when. And so this man-made disaster, Mao's second in less than a decade, starts to take off. Let's pick up where we left off last time during a rally held at the Great Hall of the People, where Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, and Liu Shaoqi, knowing they better start currying Mao's favor or else, appear before a crowd of 10,000 or so, mostly students, teachers, and they try to appear as contrite as possible and explain what this whole cultural revolution is all about. But as they try and explain themselves, and not very coherently, I might add, Mao walks on stage and steals the show and sucks all the energy out of the Great Hall. The crowd went crazy as the chairman hit the stage. Liu Shaoqi and Deng begin to get a sense that they are now dead men walking. Mao is obviously dissing them in a very unflattering way. That was July 29, 1966. And now let's begin today's episode in the unforgettable month of August, in the year of the fire horse, 1966. Now comes the time to get everything about this mass campaign organized and to define the whole purpose of this great proletarian cultural revolution thing. Mao does this on August 1st and 2nd with what soon became known as the 16 Points, though officially it was known as the Decision Concerning the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. I won't name them all, but this document serves as the playbook for the Cultural Revolution. Liu and Deng get unceremoniously pushed aside. They didn't lose their jobs, at least not yet, but Mao was very publicly marginalizing these party leaders. At this point, the Central Cultural Revolution Group is the ultimate authority in China. They're calling all the shots. 
All the work teams, those last bastions of control, the last line of defense to prevent all these hot-headed teenagers from becoming an uncontrollable mob, itching to go crazy and create havoc wherever they went, they were called back. The only thing standing in between some semblance of social order and utter chaos were these work teams. Every last one of them is recalled, and Mao and his gang just dump all over them, and there follows all this criticism, self-criticism. And by dumping on the work teams like he did, it was a classic case of the good old Jersang Mahuai point at the mulberry tree to scold the locust. This is an old Chinese saying going way, way back. How far, I have no idea, but it means point at one thing, but actually what you're doing is attacking something else. That locust is parked on that tree branch, and you're pointing at it and telling it to bugger off. But what you're really doing is pointing at the tree. So Mao was pointing at the complete and utter failure and incorrect behavior of these work teams. But what he was really doing, since Liu had already admitted responsibility for them, was pointing a finger squarely at him. So, what's Mao's next move? He calls a plenum. This is going to be the 11th plenum of the 8th Central Committee. This plenum, called by Mao, had no quorum, so I guess you could call this a, uh, a rump central committee. It was packed with Mao's kind of people, committed leftists and opportunists, or perhaps both. Nie Yuanzi, for example, she too participated as a member. If that gives you any idea about the credibility of this body, she was the Peking Yu professor who wrote that first Datsu Bao. At this time in China, you really had to put your thinking cap on. Nothing like this had ever happened, at least since liberation in 1949. So everyone had to think fast on their feet in August of 66 to analyze how best to either exploit the situation for their own personal gain or how best to survive and get through the worst of what was surely to come. This 11th plenum, it met from August 1st to 12th. This is where Chairman Mao draws a line in the sand and spells it out clearly that this mass movement is tasked with rooting out all this revisionism, this xiuzhengzhui, all around them. And the masses were going to be fully empowered to carry out class struggle against all these intellectuals, government officials, and party members with the express purpose to weed out, and here's the most key phrase again, quote, those in authority taking the capitalist road. And pretty soon we'll see who the number one person in authority is who takes the capitalist road. We'll also get to see who gets labeled the number two guy. I'll give you a hint. We featured him in an eight-part series here at the China History Podcast. It was Liu Shaoqi who gave the opening speech at the plenum. And if Mao heard anything he didn't like or that he doubted, he would interrupt Liu mid-speech. Now, he was Chairman Mao and all the Normal rules of society and politics didn't apply to him, but nonetheless, this definitely was a breakdown in decorum. Can you imagine Wen Jiapao speaking before a plenum assembly and Hu Jintao interrupting him with all these sarcastic remarks? This 11th plenum was no normal session. Liu, at this point, already knew his fate was sealed, and at this sorry point, Mao was just toying with him. Liu criticized his poor judgment and handling of the work teams. He took full responsibility for that. And then Mao said 90% of the work teams made mistakes in standing on the side of the bourgeoisie, thus opposing the proletarian revolution. So 
Here he was pointing at the work teams, but scolding Liu Xiaoqi for his dictatorial ways and how he handled everything with the work teams. This was a terrible time for Liu Xiaoqi, and it only kept getting worse for him. Mao had written a letter to the middle schools that were attached to Tsinghua University. If you recall, the very first units of what became known as Red Guards were formed there. Mao writes them a letter in response to their Datsa Bao that they had sent him. It said, Long live the proletarian revolutionary spirit of rebellion. They asked for a reply, and they got it. Mao wrote back to them, quote, You say it is right to rebel against reactionaries. I enthusiastically support you. In this letter, this is where Mao famously says, To rebel is justified. So if you're looking for some kind of endorsement from high up, what more can you want? This was one hell of a blank check Mao was giving these students. Even Premier Zhou Enlai, who always knew the right thing to do, went to a rally at Tsinghua University on August 3rd. There, he remarked on their revolutionary zeal and rebelliousness, and he tells them he should learn from them, and he saluted them. So if Premier Zhou is saying this, everyone else knew they better stand in that line. This was all pretty drastic stuff, yet there were still those in the Central Committee who hadn't totally lined up on the side of the Cultural Revolutionary Group. As the plenum went on, Mao saw there were still members sitting on the fence with respect to, you know, how far to go with this. And Mao saw this lip-syncing going on and was increasingly frustrated that these guys didn't come down off the fence and join in with total and complete enthusiastic support. Mao must have been thinking, how much clearer do I have to be with these guys before they get it? There were still those at the plenum who agreed with Mao, but felt he had really gone too far, and what he seemed to be calling for was perhaps a little bit too risky and dangerous. He was really playing with fire, saying the, the things he was saying. So they showed their support, but they didn't go far enough. And Mao saw this. At a standing committee meeting on August 4th, Mao pounds the table and minces no words when he tells the assembled group, quote, this so-called mass line, this so-called faith in the masses, this so-called Marxism-Leninism, it is all fake and has been for years. What we have here is suppression and terror, and this terror originates from the party center. Judging from the present suppression of the great proletarian cultural revolution activities of the students, I do not believe there is any real democracy or real Marxism. What we have here is standing on the side of the bourgeoisie to oppose the great proletarian cultural revolution because the party center not only has not supported the movement of the young students, but in fact has suppressed the student movement. And to, you know, to underscore this accusation, Mao finishes off by saying, quote, I am of the view that something has to be done. Then the uh, leader of the CRG, the Cultural Revolution Group, Chen Boda, he spoke next, and he followed up with one of his usual scathing attacks on the party establishment. In his remarks, he totally slammed Liu Shaoqi, and you know, Mao would occasionally chime in with his agreement. Well, as I mentioned in part one, the next day, August 5th, 1966, Mao follows up with a thunderbolt, like only he could do, and on that fateful day, he issues his own Datsa Bao, his first 
big character poster, and it's entitled Bombard the Headquarters. Pao Da Siling Bu. You know, this, this is in the middle of the plenum. You know, these are usually pretty calm and scripted meetings. So with this act, Mao said, the whole Beijing government is fair game. Mao had called in Lin Biao to attend this meeting. Lin, the hypochondriac, was convalescing in Dalian, and, but he dutifully goes to Beijing to join in on the denunciations of Liu Shaoqi. Mao wanted Lin to give a speech and really give it to Liu and give it to him good. So Lin, not a very literate man, nor was he a captivating speaker. He asked Mao, you know, exactly what he should say. So Mao calls in the same major general who scripted the denunciation of Lo Rei Qing, and he had him write the speech for Lin. And Lin Biao gave this speech, and he put Liu Shaoqi through the shredder a few times. And Lin, being the opportunistic toady that he was, who always knew what the chairman wanted to hear, followed up by saying, quote, Turn the world upside down, be noisy and boisterous, blow tempests and make big waves, cause major disturbances and lots of trouble to the point where, for the next six months, not only the bourgeoisie, but even the proletariat will be unable to sleep. So Mao made it official that to rebel was justified and to bombard the headquarters. I guess if you're some teenager itching to get out and smash things up and get some anger and frustration off your chest... What more do you want? Three days later, the 16 points are broadcast to the nation, and it becomes the official charter for the Cultural Revolution. The plenum ends on August 12th with the new lineup for the Standing Committee announced. In order of rank, they were, of course, Mao, number one, Lin Biao, now officially number two, Zhou Enlai, Tao Zhu, Chen Boda, Deng Xiaoping, still barely hanging in there at number six, Kang Sheng, Liu Shaoqi, now ranked 8th, Zhu De, Li Fuchun, and Chen Yun. Lin Biao was the only one given the title of vice chairman and was made Mao's heir apparent. Lin was also made a vice premier, but you know, being a military man and all, he didn't really get involved too much in affairs of state. He was purely a political animal. Next order of business was to clean up the so-called five big departments that were crucial to party daily work. These had all been the strongholds of the party establishment. The Propaganda Department, United Front Department, uh, Departments of Organization, uh, International Liaison, and the Central Investigation Departments. If you weren't lined up on Mao's side, you were out. So these departments are all gutted and stuffed with Mao people, all committed, loyal leftists. Interestingly, it was Zhou Enlai who Mao put in charge to oversee the Central cultural revolution group. Maybe he figured he had to have an adult supervise these kids who were always fighting and up to no good. Joe had to walk a fine line between showing Mao he was totally on board and at the same time keep the state from going over the edge of the proverbial cliff. Chen Boda was actually the one officially in charge of the group with Jiang Qing as the deputy director. So what could go wrong, right? The CRG, with these two in charge, and Kang Sheng, who, by the way, was still getting high on opium at this time, he was the advisor to the group. This was command central as far as the whole cultural revolution went. The party secretariat, led by Deng Xiaoping at the time, had always been the 
organization to carry out all the important stuff, but now it was shunted aside and anything of importance came directly from the CRG. They set themselves up in some nice digs, namely the Diaoyutai guesthouse villas. This compound was where visiting heads of state or international guests were placed. They spread themselves out in seven of these villas, Jiangqing in number 11, Kangsheng in lucky number 8, Chen Boda in number 15. Uh, villa number 16 was where they had the main office of the CRG, and number 17 served as a sort of a clubhouse for this whole motley crew. Villa 17 was where Jiang Qing housed her precious movie projector and where she famously screened all these Western movies that she loved so much. Had anyone else been caught watching any of these movies, they would have met with a grisly and unfortunate fate. Now, whether or not the CRG members believed in all these leftist rants is hard to say. They might have all believed in all this leftist propaganda to one degree or another. Nothing outtrumped their ambition and quest for personal power. And the way you got this was from your association with Mao, Jiang Qing and Kang Sheng perhaps being the best examples of this. But man, this CRG was a total nest of vipers. And many of them couldn't get along. They were supposed to be running things in the country, but between all the backstabbing and even purges going on within the group, it was hardly what you would call an effective government bureaucracy, let alone a decision-making body. Kang Sheng and Chen Bo Da famously hated each other. They never agreed on anything. And Chen Bo Da, who was nominally in charge, he couldn't get along with Zhou Enlai either. There was endless internal hostility in this band of brothers and Jiang Qing. And now that Mao had recalled the work teams, beat down his political rivals, and told all the Red Guards they had carte blanche to attack anything they wanted and smash anything and everything that fell under the very broad umbrella of the four olds, the Sijiu, old habits, customs, culture, and ideas. They did what I guess any angry and dissatisfied youth would do. They went on a rampage. And Mao was quoted in saying once, quote, This man Hitler was even more ferocious. The more ferocious, the better, don't you think? The more people you kill, the more revolutionary you are. So with Mao, in this kind of frame of mind, the so-called Red Terror began that ran for a couple months, August, September, 1966. On August 6th, the day after Mao unloaded his Datsu Bao, encouraging the Red Guards to bombard the headquarters, there was a rally held at Beijing Workers' Stadium. Word had gotten out that there were a bunch of hooligans out there posing as red guards, smashing things up, roughing up people. So a bunch of these so-called faux red guard hooligans were rounded up and uh, struggled on stage. And they were roughed up really bad in front of, you know, the 70,000 people assembled on that day. And the red guards thought these guys were giving them a bad name right out of the starting gate. So they had to be made an example of. So with 70,000 people watching this, it's sort of set the tone moving forward that anything goes and there weren't going to be any limits as far as how far you could go in your denunciations of counter-revolutionaries and in the violence carrying out in the name of defending Mao or the Cultural Revolution. One of the key things to know about the Red Guards, they were not one single cohesive unit or organization. They were factions galore, and many of them had different reasons to become a Red Guard. How they got involved and how they looked at the chance that the Cultural Revolution gave them 
depended on what their background was. Some were rich, some were poor, some educated, some not. They weren't all students. They were workers, too. You also had the elite Red Guards. They were better than anyone else because they were the wisest, and because of their parents' political connections and familiarity with party politics, they were more savvy and you know, about how to behave and what to call for. If you were an angry youth in August 1966, your moment had come. Schools were all not in session, so no one went to any classes or had to study, except study Mao's sayings and thoughts. This was the ultimate opportunity for many dissatisfied youths. And there were several kinds, as I said. You know, there were students basically dissatisfied and angry because they got caught on the wrong side of the status quo. They had no guanxi, and because of that, their chances of advancement up the ladder in China were slim and none. And those teens whose parents were from the black categories, you know, maybe former KMT, anti-revolutionary, capitalist, landlord, intellectual, whatever, they couldn't get anywhere either. They were stuck in society with whatever they got. And boiling in that pot also were millions and millions of disgruntled youth, originally from the cities, who over the years had been sent down to the countryside and couldn't get back into the city. So they were cut down in the prime of life, having to accept whatever meager hope for a good life their lot in life would get them. They couldn't get their city huko back. And back in 1966, that meant basically a life of monotony without much hope for getting a piece of the China dream. Not everyone went to college in China, so you also had a vast pool of 18, 19, 20-something-year-olds who were already working dead-end jobs, and they knew it. These young industrial workers, and then later any worker with an axe to grind, they too saw their moment to rise up and express themselves. They too were as angry and dissatisfied in life as the next type I've already explained. They were where they were because of the system that put them there and kept them there. And now they were handed their chance to push back against the system. And all these kids I mentioned, forget it, the chances of any of them ever getting into any of the middle schools that got you into the elite universities, <laughs> no chance. If you weren't related to some top party cadre or military officer, you didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting into any of those schools that served as the incubators, the, the, the prep schools for the next generation of government officials and party elites. And everything began and sort of evolved right in the capital, in Beijing. Some Red Guards stayed in Beijing. Many hit the road and went all over China, preaching their particular gospel and rubbing elbows with other like-minded Red Guards and also fighting with those who didn't see eye to eye with them. But Beijing remained the center of gravity for the whole Red Guard movement. And this was one strong gravitational force. By the end of 1966, more than 11 million Red Guard youth had converged on Beijing. From all over China they came. Red Guard groups, they rode the trains for free, were fed, housed, taken care of, courtesy of the PLA, Lin Biao's stronghold. And at Tsinghua, the center of the center, there were already more than 7,000 students from the provinces squatting there and sharing the moment with their luckier and perhaps more revolutionary Tsinghua brothers and sisters. 
Well, right from the start, even the Cultural Revolution group knew they had a tiger by the tail. They saw how fast this thing was starting to catch fire, and, and before long, it might not be so easy to control. If anything had the potential to turn into a massive, angry, destructive mob, this was it. Some of the group went to Mao and said, you know, we should tell these squatters at Tsinghua to go. This really can't be good. But Mao said, forget it. He insisted they stay and let whatever is going to happen, happen. Furthermore, Mao remarked that all these students, teachers, Lao Baixing, everyone coming to Beijing should be allowed to see their leaders. The reason Leninism perished is because no one ever got to see Lenin. So Mao said, let as many as possible come to Beijing, and he said, let's hold these rallies, and then Mao said, we could mingle with the masses, and, you know, China will be transformed. And so it was, August 18th, 1966, the first of eight rallies was held in Tiananmen Square, a place where you could really pack them in. You'd get close to a million people all in one spot. That's 10 Wembleys, everybody, 10 Rose Bowls, 10 Camp News, all chanting and screaming slogans and getting caught up in the moment. At this first rally, Kangsheng stood there on the gate of heavenly peace, the very place where Mao stood to declare the founding of the nation. Kang stood there next to Mao as a million or perhaps more, mostly young people, shouted out their adulation for the chairman and all he stood for. I introduced Kangsheng back in one of the earliest China history podcasts, other than being a discerning collector of art and books, he really was a bad guy from almost any way you looked at him. And here he was, standing next to Mao at this first rally of the Cultural Revolution. This was one of his finest hours. What did Mao feel at this moment? A little over a month before, on July 16th, he had swum the Yangtze, symbolically making his historic comeback. He was coming back to teach everyone that this whole communism, socialism thing was for real, and while he had been gone from the capital, they had been forsaking it, and he was going to shake things up. He didn't like to see how China's leaders and institutions had become static, slow, bureaucratic, capitalistic. He saw this, and he also saw how he himself, Mao Zedong, wasn't being respected. Mao was not what you would call a healthy 73-year-old guy. He saw his own impending mortality, and he didn't want to go down in history as the guy who launched the Great Leap Forward. He couldn't stop thinking about what Khrushchev did to Stalin, and he was certain the same thing was about to happen to him. Mao made up his mind that all these party stalwarts now running the country and the CCP, old comrades or not, he didn't want to take any chances that they or their minions might rewrite history and give him less than all the glory and credit he deserved and demanded. And just to clarify, um, Mao didn't actually swim across the Yangtze. That is, he didn't swim in the conventional sense, you know, breaststroke, crawl, backstroke, whatever. Mao had his own patented swimming method where he sort of stood almost straight up and just sort of propelled himself from that vertical swimming position. I, I watched the old black and white footage on YouTube of Mao in Wuhan you know, joining in that annual swim across the Yangtze. You know, Mao, he floated on his back, too, and he was thoroughly enjoying himself, I'm sure. 
and the images and later propaganda posters of the post-swim Mao on the boat in his white bathrobe, you know, waving. Oh, man, this was political theater at its finest. And now, just a month later, here he was, standing in front of a million Lao Baixing, all enthusiastically chanting his name and wishing him long life. He must have liked the feeling because he had seven more in the next four months, from mid-August to late November 1966. What did Mao feel as he walked out onto the very podium at Tiananmen where, only 17 years before, he had declared the founding of the nation? What was going through his head as he stepped forward and the crowd roared out his name? He wore a green army uniform that day. It had been a while since Mao dressed in this way. The rally lasted for about six hours. A select group of Red Guards had been chosen to meet with Mao and, you know, do a photo op for the People's Daily and whatnot. The way it worked was Mao would mingle with them and they'd have their little jiao together, their little chit-chat, and Mao would say a few things that would be quoted and, you know, that would you know become national policy, just like that. CRG photographers would get it all on film and extract maximum political value from, you know, whatever shots were released. But the way it turned out, it was another one of those signature events of the Cultural Revolution. You know, Mao's Swim, The Little Red Book, Nie Yuanzi's Dao Zibao, Ma's Dao Zibao, saying bombard the headquarters. Now comes another unforgettable moment of the Cultural Revolution. They had all these commemorative red silk armbands made that these, you know, select chosen students all wore. And they had the words Hong Wei Bing on it. This is Chinese for Red Guard. Now, once these chosen ones got to meet Mao and do the mingle thing with them, Song Bing Bing, one of the students there, pulls out a Red Guard armband and puts it on Mao's royal arm, which, you know, he accepted enthusiastically. And on that day, Mao became the supreme commander of the Red Guards. And um, just an aside, Song Bin Bin, you know, whose name meant polite, gentle, refined. You know, Mao asked her her name. And when he heard this, he said, no, no, your name should be Song Yao Wu, Yao Wu, which means uh, be, to be violent. So for a while, at least, she became known as Song Yao Wu. And, of course, uh, Lin Piao and Jiang Qing were there, joining in on the great moment, beaming, loving, being at the center of attention, urging on these adoring youth to smash the, the four olds. When Mao appeared before the assembled multitudes with that red guard armband on, that was about as rock-solid an endorsement as one could hopefully dream for. If he hadn't made it clear yet that nothing short of maximum revolutionary zeal with no boundaries was to be carried out, this symbolic act of Mao putting on the red armband truly put eight exclamation points after everything he had said up till now. If the Red Guards and anyone else with the urge to practice destruction rather than construction needed more legitimacy than this, there wasn't anywhere else in the universe to get it. And that, my lovable listeners, is where we are going to put the bookmark back in for now. Once again, when I started working on part three of this series, I thought for sure I'd at least finish off 1966. But there's so much going on at this early stage, I suppose I should count myself lucky that we got as far as this first rally. 
When we come back next time, the evil forces led by Kang Sheng are going to make their move on Liu Shaoqi, and we'll see China's head of state fall victim to all his enemies in the Central Cultural Revolution group. Jiang Qing always hated this guy and his glamorous wife, China's first lady, Wang Guangmei, she of such class and impeccable taste. They're all going to get theirs in the next episode, so I do hope you'll stick with this. All the most horrific aspects of the Wenhua Dakeming are just about to go down here in the second half of 1966 and into 1967. A few things before I go. John in Michigan brought uh, something interesting to my attention. Go check out the great Jeremy Goldcorn's blog, Donway.com, for not only a vast pool of info on Chinese culture and happenings, but also for a series on Liu Jing's Understanding China Through Comics, which introduces all kinds of history and culture using the medium of comics. It's great. I'll put the uh, link on my website. And of course, let me rave once again about the latest Seneca podcast. These guys never, ever disappoint. I only wish it was a daily show. Kaiser Guo, Jeremy Goldcorn, and this time the occasional guest David Moser. Uh, in this latest show on May 24th, they have Victor Mayer on, and this one is a keeper. He's called the Indiana Jones of China, and I urge you to give this particular Seneca podcast a listen and find out why. I always rave about this podcast. You get to you get to hear a little about what's going on in China from people who have lived there for years, speak Mandarin fluently, know what they're talking about, and couldn't be more articulate in how they present it. I get thank yous from so many of you for turning you on to this gem on the internet. I'm reading Paul French's latest book, Midnight in Peking. If you like Chinese history and haven't picked it up yet, let me urge you to do so. So far, it's great. Also reading Sean Ryan's The End of Cheap China. And finally, my copy of Mary Tiffin's Friends of Sir Robert Hart arrived. So that one is in the queue, and I'm sure I'll make it a podcast uh, one of these days. I was in Kansas City a few days ago. I was there visiting a customer, but really all I thought about was being in the same place as the great one, Bob Packett, my inspiration for this China History podcast. Next time in KC, I'm going to call Professor Bob and go pay my most humble respects. Professor Bob, of course, is uh, from History According to Bob. Oh, man, we had some awesome KC barbecue there before we headed to the airport. I took my gang from China to Jack Stack and introduced them to this great all-American tradition and delicacy. They loved it. I, for one, am definitely going to go back to Kansas City again for not only more barbecue, but more importantly, to go on a pilgrimage to see the Podfather. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again from the very edge of Los Angeles County in lovely Claremont, California. Take care, everyone, and it's always one of my greatest hopes that you'll join me next time for another episode of the China History Podcast.